You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part five in our series on Ibn Battuta. Two notes for today. First, there are multiple maps on our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see Ibn Battuta's route. And second, if I sound different, that is because I have updated my podcasting gear and my podcasting space. This was a big deal for me, but I know it was needed. This should fix my problem of too much echo. I hope you like the new sound. Anyhow, that is it for notes. Let's get going. Last time, we left Ibn Battuta after he had crossed the western Himalayan mountains and reached the Indus River in modern-day Pakistan. A decade earlier, a mystic had predicted that he would reach India, and that prediction had come true. Ibn Battuta was a very different man than when we kicked off our series in episode 1. He was around 30 years old, and he had grown wealthy on his travels. He had with him friends and companions, servants, slaves, and concubines. He had horses, camels, and expensive clothing, marking him as an important person. When he arrived in India, he was a more experienced and confident man. He had with him advisors who spoke the local languages and knew the region's customs. Also, he was coming to India for a very different reason than all of his other adventures. He was looking for work. His goal was to reach the capital of the Sultanate of Delhi and offer his services as a qadi or judge. And it was said that the Sultan, Muhammad bin Tughlaq, was one of the richest Muslims in the world, and that he loved to lavish money and position on foreign advisors. So now is probably a good time to talk about Muhammad bin Tughlaq, for he is a fascinating man and a central part of today's episode. The Tughlaq dynasty in India was established in 1320. The foundations of the dynasty were formed in the early 1200s when Turks had invaded India from Afghanistan, bringing Islam with them. From 1206 to 1526, there would be five different dynasties ruling over the Delhi Sultanate. Now, let us be clear, none of these dynasties completely ruled India. The region was littered with smaller kingdoms, and conflict was a continuous theme. A major reason for this was religion. Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and others fought to maintain their place in society, and at times, just survive. And we can't look past ethnic divisions. India's population was quite diverse. The Muslims for now ruled, despite being a minority of the population. They set themselves on top of society, like an additional layer of the Hindu caste system. So, the Tughlaq dynasty came to power in a bloody and vicious coup. Muhammad bin Tughlaq ascended the throne in 1325, making him around 35 years old at the time. 
Some historians say that the man killed his father and his brother in order to claim the throne. Under Muhammad bin Tughlaq, the Delhi Sultanate reached its power in the early 1330s, ruling much of the Indian subcontinent. However, the Sultan was, shall we say, an erratic ruler. He was an intellectual with an extensive knowledge of the Quran, poetry, and science. He spoke Persian and Arabic and had mastered the art of calligraphy. He was tolerant of other religions, even participating in Hindu ceremonies. He was known to be generous to the poor and needy. However, the man was, frankly, if you read the stories, a violent psychopath. He was deeply suspicious of his relatives and ministers, and he was incredibly harsh towards his enemies and anyone he perceived as being an enemy. To defy or even question the man, his policies, and his decisions was risking death. Words I've seen used to describe him include inhumane, paranoid, and eccentric. Ibn Battuta said, quote, The king is of all men the most addicted to the making of gifts and the shedding of blood. End quote. Ziauddin Burrani, an Indian Muslim political thinker from this time period, wrote this about the Sultan. Quote, Not a day or week passed without the spilling of much Muslim blood. Muslim means Muslim. And the running of streams of gore before the entrance of his palace. End quote. In addition to these brutal practices, his policies were divisive. He taxed non-Muslims at an exorbitant rate, making them resentful, and he was known to invest enormous amounts of money and energy into projects only to see them fail miserably. One example of this was when he moved the capital of the Sultanate from Delhi to Dalitabad, about 600 miles or 1,000 kilometers south of Delhi. This was done for a variety of reasons, but in the end, it angered and disenfranchised all sorts of people. Resistance to the move was so fierce, the Sultan caved on the transfer, even after building a huge fortress and moving thousands of positions to the new capital. Another great example of the Sultan's short-sighted rule was when he ran out of gold and silver to pay for his military campaigns. To get more money, he started minting coins using base metals, such as lead. Well, the populace just started making their own coins using whatever metal they had in their homes, and the empire's economic system collapsed. Mohammed bin Tughlaq lacked any sort of delicate touch regarding, well, everything. He refused to understand the intricate regional or caste divisions within Hindu society, as well as the rivalries within the Muslim elites. Rossi Dunn, in his book on Ibn Battuta, wrote this on the Sultan, quote, He was a bull in the china shop of Indian society, insensitive to the delicate compromises among social groups and power cliques that had held the Sultanate together for more than a century, end quote. When things went bad for the Sultan, he would brood and become paranoid, not a great thing for a violent, unpredictable guy. Anyhow, enough with the Sultan. Ibn Battuta was coming to India to look for work, and the Sultan was looking for qualified workers. And no one was better than a foreigner. And that is because, historically, regimes often staffed important positions with people who had little or no local connections to those jobs. Why do this? Well, a foreigner or outsider doesn't have family or friends to worry about. They have no ties to the community. They are there for the money, and whoever pays the money gets their loyalty. You find this tactic used throughout history all over the world. Example, in the early days of the Roman Empire, the emperor had the numerous Batavorum, or Imperial German Bodyguard. These were the men who personally protected the emperor. Most of these guys came from the Germanic tribes in the north, and thus had no familiar or political ties to the various factions in Rome. The emperor paid these guys very well, and they had little reason to want to betray him. Anyhow, this was the strategy of Mohammed bin Tughlaq. He was filling his administration with Muslim foreigners, giving them expensive gifts and high pay. This meant their loyalty was strictly to him. 
Ibn Battuta arrived in the valley of the Indus River in September of 1333 or 1335. The area had been involved in a war with the Mongols a few years earlier, but it was now at peace and trade was good. When Ibn Battuta and his companions arrived, they were questioned by local officials. Ibn Battuta told them that it was his desire to serve the Sultan, and his request was sent on to Delhi. He was then directed to the city of Multan in the Punjab region. This was the military capital of the western frontier. He took up lodging at the headquarters of a Sufi order and waited for two months. The city, he reported, was filled with foreigners, just like himself. During this time, he was interviewed by government officials. The biggest concern they had was that they wanted men who were willing to commit to a permanent stay in India. Office seekers were even asked to put that commitment in writing. Those who refused were turned away. Ibn Battuta agreed to these conditions. He was then told to prepare to go to Delhi, and this, he found, was an expensive proposition. And that's because giving gifts was a common and expected custom for the higher-ups in the Sultanate. He could not just go to the Sultan, say hello, and ask for a job. Proper form said that you brought gifts as a sign of respect and allegiance. This whole process was so embedded in society, Ibn Battuta spends paragraphs and paragraphs detailing the elaborate gifts given to the Sultan, as well as gifts handed out by the Sultan. There's lots and lots of gold and silver, and all sorts of horses, elephants, slaves, and pottery, just to name a few examples. Ibn Battuta thus took out a loan and purchased horses, camels, slaves, and other goods to be presented to the Sultan. By the way, the gift-giving was a two-way street. If all went well, Ibn Battuta expected the Sultan to give him a pile of cool stuff in return. And as the Sultan was filthy rich, he expected that pile of stuff to be really valuable. And you know what? This would prove to be correct, and Ibn Battuta made an enormous profit on this gift-exchange scheme. He departed from Moulton in the late winter of 1334 or 1336 and headed east from the Indus River to the valley of the Upper Ganges River. With Ibn Battuta were 40 companions, including friends, servants, and slaves. His Egyptian buddy, Al-Tazuri, was part of the entourage. For safety, Ibn Battuta and his retinue traveled to Delhi with a larger group. However, he recounts making the mistake of lagging behind and being attacked by more than 80 Hindu bandits on the road. He said this of the affair, quote, My companions were men of courage and vigor, and we fought stoutly with them, killing one of their horsemen and about twelve of their foot soldiers, and capturing the horse of the former. I was hit by an arrow and my horse by another, but God in his grace preserved me from them, for there was no force in their arrows. End quote. These were desperate men, ill-equipped and ill-trained for combat. They were easily defeated. That night the victors reached a town where they decorated its walls with the heads of their defeated enemies. It wasn't long before Ibn Battuta arrived in Delhi, which he called, quote, the largest of all the cities of Islam in the east, end quote. As this was the capital of the Sultanate, the city was famed as an Islamic stronghold. Muslims came from all over the world, including religious scholars, artisans, historians, poets, and musicians, where they found safety and an opportunity to thrive. Persian was spoken by the city's elites, which always kept themselves above the commoners. And while many of the most powerful people in the city and the administration had Persian roots, more and more Indian Muslims were being integrated into the government. Now, one odd thing about the city Ibn Battuta found was that it was half empty upon his arrival. And that's because of the big attempt to move the capital a few years earlier by the Sultan. Many people were still there. As for the Sultan, he was gone as well, dealing with the tax revolt. Instead, Ibn Battuta met with an aide to the Sultan, a vizier. He also met with the Sultan's mother, who was blind, and had a ceremonial meal and exchanged gifts. 
Edmund Petuta didn't have an official appointment yet, but he was given 5,000 silver dinars as an annual stipend. For reference, a Hindu family lived on 5 dinars a month, and a soldier was paid around 20 dinars a month. Ibn Battuta's salary would be paid for from the revenues of two and a half villages, which were located about 16 miles north of the city. This was a common way to pay administrators, by assigning them tax revenue from an area. With no duties yet, Ibn Battuta rode out and inspected his villages, but in reality, he did not have any sort of responsibility or hand in running these places. On June 8th, Ibn Battuta would finally get to meet his patron when word went out that the Sultan was approaching the city. He went out, along with all sorts of other dignitaries, officials, and visitors, to meet the sultan. Each person was presented to the empire's ruler, in order of importance. When it was Ibn Battuta's turn, he was escorted into a great tent to meet Muhammad bin Tughlaq, who he described as a tall, robust man. The sultan was seated, his legs tucked beneath him, on a gold-plated throne. This was a critical moment for Ibn Battuta. He knew the stories of the temperamental king, and he had to make sure that things went well. And thankfully, things did go favorably. The sultan took Ibn Battuta's hand, saying, quote, This is a blessing. Your arrival is blessed. Be at ease. I shall be compassionate to you and give you such favors that your fellow countrymen will hear of it and come to join you. End quote. Ibn Battuta kissed the hand of the sultan seven times and was given a robe of honor. Other valuable gifts would follow. In Delhi, the sultan entered the city with great fanfare. There were elephants with small catapults on them, and these catapults hurled gold and silver coins to those watching. Ibn Battuta was led into the Hall of a Thousand Pillars, where the Sultan named him the Qadi of Delhi. He was one of several judges holding such a position. He was given more villages to draw upon for a salary, which now amounted to 12,000 silver dinars a year. Plus, there were 12,000 more as a bonus. His companions were all given 2,000 dinars each. This was an obscene amount of money, and as noted, it made the administrators of the empire extraordinarily loyal to the sultan. It is a trick that is old as well forever. But I do want to note that there were many people above Ibn Battuta in the pecking order of the empire. Think of him as a newly minted millionaire. He had a lot of money, but there were plenty of other people who had tens of millions of dollars, or even billions. He was rich, just not filthy rich. Now, Ibn Battuta had some challenges ahead of him as a qadi. First, he did not speak Persian, the language used to conduct administrative and legal affairs in the Sultanate. And second, he was educated in the Maliki school of Islamic jurisprudence within Sunni Islam. In India, the Hanifa school was what was adhered to. I'm not going to go into the differences between the two schools, just know that Ibn Battuta would have to learn and adapt to this reality, because that's what the Sultan demanded. And let's be clear, he would do what the Sultan wanted. To defy the boss was not healthy. Anyhow, to help Ibn Battuta with things, he was assigned a pair of Persian-speaking scholars. And in reality, it doesn't seem as if Ibn Battuta, as a judge, was taxed too much. Outside of Delhi, the populace was not a Muslim majority, so things could not necessarily be enforced in many places, limiting his effectiveness as an interpreter of Islamic law. Now, a few things I want to talk about that will dominate Ibn Battuta's life for the next few years. First, as noted, Ibn Battuta was making a lot of money as a qadi, but the system he now lived in forced a person to spend money, lots of it. Gifts were a way of life in this world. They weren't just expected, they were required. And topping another person's gift was super important. If someone gave you 10 horses, you would give someone else 20. Ibn Battuta admits he developed a reputation for extravagance, even having to borrow money to fund his lifestyle. 
And speaking of lifestyles, Ibn Battuta did all he could to keep up with his peers. Hunting expeditions were common. And I'm not talking about a few people out trying to bag a deer. These were massive affairs. Ibn Battuta bought himself a huge white tent for these excursions, bringing along a full household of servants, clothing, and food. The second thing I want to talk about is the Sultan, Muhammad bin Tughlaq. The man hovers over everything that goes on in Ibn Battuta's life. For Ibn Battuta, and pretty much everyone else in Delhi, the best times were when the Sultan was in the field, fighting a never-ending series of revolts throughout the realm. These were often religious and ethnic conflicts. A seven-year drought in the north contributed to the unrest. But the scariest thing for Ibn Battuta and his fellow court officials was when the Sultan was in town. Then things got really frightening. Ibn Battuta wrote this of the Sultan, quote, In spite of all that we have related of his humility, his sense of fairness, his compassion for the needy, and his extraordinary liberality, the Sultan was far too free in shedding blood. End quote. It didn't matter the person or the fault. If you upset the Sultan, the punishment was severe. Ibn Battuta added, quote, Every day there are brought to the audience hall hundreds of people chained, pinioned, and fettered, and those who are to be executed are executed, those for torture, tortured, and those for beating, beaten. End quote. Ibn Battuta describes a respected Sufi leader and a friend of his who refused to condone some objectionable actions of the Sultan. As punishment, the man had each hair of his beard plucked out one by one. He was released, but would again displease the Sultan, who had him brutally tortured and beheaded. This was something Ibn Battuta had never experienced before. He was part of this crazy train, and it scared the heck out of him. And so, Ibn Battuta would spend years navigating the often perilous world of the Sultanate. He became an administrator of a prominent mosque in Delhi. As such, he oversaw nearly 500 people, including teachers, students, cooks, guards, and clerks. The taxes from 30 villages went to running the mosque. He held this position for two and a half years. But during all of his time in Delhi, the empire was in a constant state of upheaval. The famine in the north drove all sorts of people to Delhi, resulting in unrest. The area of Bengal in the east broke off and formed its own sultanate, and everywhere there was fighting. Ibn Battuta provides a unique insider lived-through-it perspective to the rule of Muhammad bin Tughlaq. He talks about the wars, the armies, and the people involved, and the politics of it all. There's a ton of this sort of stuff in his book, so much so that your eyes glaze over after a while. Also, he talks lots and lots about life in India, including the people, religion, and social customs. It's an important document about life in India during this time. And I also want to stress that I think that I, at times, forget to share with you the wonders Ibn Battuta encounters. This happens so often, it sort of gets lost in the list of names of cities and people and so forth. It's things such as describing a rhinoceros for the first time, or visiting the tomb of a Muslim sheikh who supposedly lived to be 140 years old. That's fun stuff. Anyhow, all of that aside, there is a big problem with working for a paranoid despot, and that is that over time, it's easy for everyone to, at one point or another, fall under suspicion of disloyalty. And that sort of thing seeps into the life of Ibn Battuta. One reason he fell under the wary eye of the Sultan was that while in Delhi, Ibn Battuta married a woman. This woman was the daughter of Asin Shah, the leader of a rebellion against the Sultan and she was the sister of a court official who had plotted rebellion and been executed. All of this through suspicion on Ibn Battuta. Another issue was with the guy I mentioned earlier, the Sufi sheikh who had had his beard plucked out and later executed. 
This guy was Ibn Battuta's friend, and Ibn Battuta made the mistake of visiting him while he was under surveillance. This led to Ibn Battuta being suspected of plotting some sort of treason. As a result, he had guards posted on him around the clock. He was left wondering when or if the axe was going to fall. It has shades of the French Revolution or a million other turbulent dictatorial regimes. After nine days of being hounded over, Ibn Battuta found himself suddenly released. Why? Well, we really don't know. Perhaps he wasn't important enough. Or maybe something else caught the eye of the Sultan and his secret police types. Who knows? But Ibn Battuta understood that he needed to do something. He couldn't just leave, not without the Sultan's permission. And it would be hard for him to disappear as he was a foreigner who didn't look or sound like the locals. And honestly, he didn't want to just disappear. He had a lot of stuff. A wife, slaves, concubines, friends, and wealth. He didn't want to lose that. And so he selected a way to disappear from the political scene without causing alarm to his boss. He decided to take a spiritual retreat, a hermitage. And thus he donned the clothes of a beggar and went to Kamal al-Din, a cave outside of Delhi. He would stay at Kamal al-Din for five months. It was then that he was suddenly summoned to Delhi by the Sultan. Once there, he was ordered to go to the Sindh in the southwest of the Sultanate. Ibn Battuta countered the posting by asking to go on a hajj to Mecca. This was a hard thing for the Sultan to deny. It was one of the most holy things a Muslim could do. And thus he agreed to the proposal, much to the relief of Ibn Battuta. Ibn Battuta would spend another 40 days at a Sufi hermitage, preparing for his hajj. But you know what? The Sultan knew that if Ibn Battuta went to Mecca, he wasn't coming back. And so he brought Ibn Battuta a new proposal go to China as an ambassador to the Mongol court. The Sultan said that he had selected Ibn Battuta for the job because of his, quote, love of travel and sightseeing, end quote. For Ibn Battuta, this offered two things. First, the chance to escape India, and second, and even more astounding, the opportunity to go to China. It would fulfill the prediction made by the Sufi mystic many years ago in the Middle East. So why was this happening? The Sultanate of Delhi had a long-standing hatred of the Mongols, so why engage with them? Well, in 1340, 15 ambassadors for Togun Timur, the Mongol emperor of the Yuan dynasty in China, arrived in Delhi. They wanted to expand overseas trade with India, and they asked to erect a Buddhist shrine about 80 miles east of Delhi. As a gift to the Sultan, they brought a hundred slaves, plus cartloads of silk, jewels, perfumes, and other luxury items. Regarding the Buddhist shrine, the Sultan rejected that plan, but the idea of opening up lucrative trade channels with China was appealing. Everyone liked the idea of more money, especially a caste-strapped regime. And so, Mohammed bin Tughlaq offered the ambassadorship to Ibn Battuta, and he accepted. It was now time to head to China. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? 
Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 1341, a huge expedition, led by Ibn Battuta, was organized to go to China. The Sultan would send along a bunch of royal presents, more elaborate than anything that the Mongol Emperor had sent to him, because that was the tradition in India. This included 200 slaves, singers and dancers, 100 horses, textiles, robes, dishware, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Chinese convoy departed Delhi on August 2, 1341. I say convoy because it was a huge enterprise. This included the 15 Chinese representatives, plus their entourage. Ibn Battuta's friend, Al-Tazuri, was along for the ride, again, as well as other companions. This included slaves, servants, wives, and children. Ibn Battuta's team included a Persian scholar, plus a eunuch named Kafur. The latter oversaw the day-to-day business of the caravan, including the slaves in imperial presence. The plan was to head south to Dalitabad, which was the city the Sultan tried to turn into the capital, and then to Cambay on the west coast. It would then head down the Indian coast to Calicut, where the Great Company would board ocean-going junks to take them to China. For the overland trek to Cambay, Ibn Battuta had the protection of 1,000 imperial cavalry. Now, let us remember that this was an era of famine and turmoil. Conditions were not great for anyone. And with that in mind, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers southeast of Delhi, the caravan came to a town under siege from 4,000 Hindu insurgents. The Sultan's battle-hardened horsemen, despite the 4-1 to odds, quickly routed the rebels who surrendered. The Sultan's troops lost only 78 men in the fighting. However, one of the dead was Kafur, the eunuch under Ibn Battuta's command. Now, the Sultan's troops did not just continue on with the march. Instead, a campaign against the local rebels was launched. This allowed Ibn Battuta to send back messengers to Delhi, seeking a replacement for Kafur. In the meantime, Ibn Battuta took part in the fighting against the insurgents, going on several military excursions. And it was on one of these that he almost lost his life. Ibn Battuta, along with five others, became separated while hunting some rebels. It was then that his small group was attacked and the party scattered. Ibn Battuta found himself alone and pursued by horsemen. He was able to avoid the horsemen by hiding in the fields, but once he set out on foot to find aid, he ran smack into a party of 40 bowmen. He was promptly robbed of everything he had, except his shirt, pants, and cloak. Ibn Battuta, by this time, spoke Persian pretty well, but what he didn't speak much of was Hindi, and thus he was not able to negotiate with his captors, telling them he was a valuable asset worthy of a ransom, that sort of thing. And so the order was given to execute Ibn Battuta. A couple of men were handed the dark task, but in the end, they simply didn't have the nerve to execute an unarmed man. Ibn Battuta eventually convinced them to spare him, and he was set free. He ran into a bamboo forest without hesitation before anyone changed their mind. 
Ibn Battuta wandered the wilds of India for six days, surviving on some herbs and water. He avoided villages as the people were mostly Hindus, who disliked the sultan and would offer him little sympathy. But by the seventh day, he was so desperate for food, he entered a village to ask for help. He was robbed of his shirt and forced to flee again. The next day, he wandered into another village and collapsed. Thankfully, the person who found him was a Muslim man who fed him some rice and beans. The man then carried Ibn Battuta to another village that had a government office. When Ibn Battuta awoke, his savior was gone, but he was now safe. Ibn Battuta would eventually be reunited with his company, which now had a replacement for Kafur, a man named Sambul. With the ambassador back with the caravan and the counterinsurgency wrapping up, everyone continued towards Dalitabad. Dalitabad turned out to be an impressive place. It had two and a half miles of walls enclosing a city and a great fort, rising up 800 feet above a plain, surrounded by a moat. From Dalitabad, it was on to Cambay, which today is called Kambad, on the western coast of India at the Mahi River estuary. It was the first time Ibn Battuta had seen the ocean in ages. Of the city, he said, quote, Cambay is one of the most beautiful cities as regards to the artistic architecture of its houses and the construction of its mosques, end quote. The city was flush with trade and thus cash. Foreigners were everywhere. Ibn Battuta would spend several days in the city as the guest of the governor. After that, they went down the coast a ways before boarding four large cargo ships, likely two masted dows, to take the entire company further south. In addition to the 100 horses and 200 slaves, plus Ibn Battuta and his people, there were 100 soldiers to defend the ships against pirates. Many of the soldiers were black Africans, men who now made a career protecting ships in the dangerous waters of the Arabian Sea. Of these warriors, Ibn Battuta wrote, quote, They are the lords of this sea, for even if there is only one of them in a ship, pirates and Hindus think twice about attacking. End quote. In December of 1341, the four ships headed down the coast ahead of the monsoon season. Now, the southwestern coast of the Indian subcontinent is commonly called the Malabar Coast. It stretches for more than 500 miles or 800 kilometers. This area is unique because there is a mountain range called the Western Ghats that run parallel with the coast. This makes the coastal area between the mountains and the Arabian Sea especially well protected from the rest of India. In Ibn Battuta's time, it allowed the cities along the coast to act as quasi-independent kingdoms from the Sultanate of Delhi. There were 12 of these ports, including Mangalore, Calicut, Wulan, and Goa. These cities were crucial as the in-between spot of trade from China to the Middle East. Trade across the Bay of Bengal on the eastern side of India came on Chinese junks. They would drop their goods at the various Malabar coast ports and head back east with new stuff. The Latin rigged ships of the Arabs would then bring the goods to the Middle East and Africa. As maritime security was critical to these ports, they often had their own powerful navies. The first of these independent city-states to be reached was Hanavar. This port was the only one ruled by a Muslim. Ibn Battuta's fleet spent three weeks here, and he became friends with the ruler, a man named Jamal al-Din. As a reminder, wherever Ibn Battuta went, he would have been treated with respect. He was an ambassador for the sultan. No one wanted to poke that bear. The fleet continued down the coast, eventually reaching Calicut. Here, the Chinese envoys got on their own ships, parting ways with Ibn Battuta. And it was in Calicut that Ibn Battuta prepared for the next leg of his journey to China. In the harbor, he could see the big Chinese junks. These were huge ocean-going vessels, far bigger than the Arab ships. 
One person called them the ocean liners of the medieval age. Ibn Battuta was so impressed by them, he even takes time to talk about their design, something he really does in his book. The biggest of these junks had up to five desks and a crew of 500 men. There were many cabins of varying sizes, some with private bathrooms. They could carry tons and tons of cargo. Ibn Battuta counted 13 of these big junks in the Calicut port when he arrived. The expedition was ready to depart Calicut in February of 1342. There were three ships, the largest one being these great ocean liner type junks. All the imperial stuff was sent on board that vessel. And it is here that we run into a problem. It seems that Chinese merchants had already booked the best cabins on the ship, and Ibn Battuta was left with one that lacked a private bathroom. Such a thing was not befitting a royal envoy. It was suggested that Ibn Battuta transfer over to the smallest of the ships, which had quality cabins available. He agreed to this. And so, Ibn Battuta's personal luggage and staff were moved to the new ship. Ibn Battuta went ashore for the night, the intention to sail in the morning. And it was in the night that the area was struck by a violent storm. Now, there is one thing about the Chinese junks that we have been talking about that is very important. They were incredible ships for the era. However, they were not the best vessels if they got too close to shore. And so, when the storms hit, Ibn Battuta's three ships put out to sea, as Calicut's harbor was not deep or particularly well protected. Well, the storm proved to be a nasty one, and in the night, the two larger junks were driven aground, broke up, and sank. The next morning, bodies of men, women, and animals, along with the wreckage, washed up on the beach. The locals came out and salvaged anything of value. No one from the ship, which Ibn Battuta was supposed to have been on, survived the disaster. Now, I said two of the ships were sunk, but the third, the smaller junk with all of Ibn Battuta's personal stuff, including his baggage, servants, and concubines, was missing. And so, here was Ibn Battuta, a royal envoy of the Sultan of Delhi, standing on the shores of India at Calicut, everything gone. He said he had a prayer rug, his clothing, and ten dinars. His friend, al and one or two others were with him as well. It was a disaster, but at least he was alive. Ibn Battuta decided to hire a small river craft and go down the coast through the canals and lagoons that make up the Malabar coast. He hoped his other ship had survived the storm and he could catch it at Quillen, about 180 miles or 290 kilometers away. The journey to Quillen would take 10 days, but when he got there, there was no news about his ship. He feared it had been lost at sea. Ibn Battuta would take up residence at a Sufi hospice and consider his situation. He had pretty much nothing. For about two seconds, he considered going back to Delhi, but that was ludicrous. The last thing he wanted was to walk up to the Sultan and tell him, Hey boss, sorry, but I lost everything. Can you write out another check and we can do this again? Yeah, that was not going to happen. Not without Ibn Battuta's head coming off his body. And thus he returned to Calicut and from there found a ship to take him back to the port of Hanavar. This was the only Muslim-ruled city along the Malabar coast, and Ibn Battuta had gotten along with Jamal al-Din, the ruler. Once in Hanover, Ibn Battuta found himself alone, and that is because Jamal al-Din was planning an invasion of Goa, which was about 100 miles or 160 kilometers to the north along the coast. Regarding the proposed invasion, the idea had come to Jamal al-Din in the form of the son of Goa's ruler, or Raja. The son had had a falling out with his father and wanted to seize his throne. He had come to Hanover looking for assistance in the coup, saying he would convert to Islam and marry Jamal al-Din's sister, if everything went as planned. The Lord of Hanover saw this as a perfect chance to expand his influence, and thus he put together more than 50 warships. 
The plan was to launch an amphibious attack on Goa and seize the city. Ibn Battuta spent 40 days without much to do, most of the time at the local mosque. Eventually, he approached Jamal al-Din and offered him his services. Jamal al-Din was delighted at the offer and put Ibn Battuta in charge of the invasion. Well, not really in charge, but he did give him a title that made him sound important. Jamal al-Din was probably happy to have the Sultan's envoy as part of his team, even if the position was honorific. Anyhow, the expedition sailed on October 12, 1342, and soon the attack on Goa was underway. The inhabitants were ready, catapults hurling objects at the fleet as it approached. Ibn Battuta said the sound of drums and horns filled the air. When the fleet got near the shore, soldiers leapt out, their shields and spears and swords in hand. Ibn Battuta said he was with them. The city's defenders fell back to the safety of the castle, but the attackers were able to start it on fire and force them to surrender. Jamal al-Din was happy with the results and rewarded Ibn Battuta for his part in things, the latter saying, quote, He gave me a young female prisoner named Lemke, whom I called Murbaka. Her husband wished to ransom her, but I refused. End quote. By the way, Ibn Battuta's cavalier attitude towards women and relationships is often cringeworthy, even if it was not uncommon for the time and place. Anyhow, regarding Goa, Jamal al-Din was in no hurry to hand it over to the former ruler's son, and without much else to do, Ibn Battuta headed south to Calicut to see if he could find word about his lost ship. He would stay several months in Calicut and was surprised when two slaves from his missing ship appeared at his door. They brought word to Ibn Battuta, telling him his vessel had survived the storm and continued south and entered the Bay of Bengal on the eastern side of India. The ship's intent was to continue on to China. And thus, Ibn Battuta had lost his best chance at completing its mission. Although in reality, it was a blessing in disguise. And that's because he would later learn that the ship was seized by the king of Sumatra and all of the people, including his concubines, wife, and slaves, were captured. His wife died, as did one of his favorite concubines, who was pregnant at the time. So with this disappointing news, Ibn Battuta elected to return to Goa in June of 1343. However, things were not going so well in Goa. In a surprise move, the Raja Hujma al-Din had overthrown a half year earlier, had rallied his forces, and besieged the city. Ibn Battuta saw little to gain by hanging around. He didn't want to be associated with a loser, and so he headed south, arriving in Calicut a few weeks later for the fifth time in the past year. And here, Ibn Battuta essentially had three options. One was to return to Delhi, which in all honesty was not an option if he wanted to live. Option two was to find a way west, back to Arabia, perhaps go on another Hajj. But that would mean returning without any sort of fortune. Option three was to continue his mission and push on to China. He was, after all, the official envoy of the Sultanate of Delhi. That was not an insignificant thing, and the route to China would have many Muslim communities to help him with such an endeavor. As you have probably guessed, the answer will be option number three, China. And so Ibn Battuta caught a ship that was going to take him on another extraordinary journey. It will begin with the Maldives, then move on to Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Sumatra, Vietnam, and China. But that will be for next time. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our story thus far. Thank you for joining us. Please take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find other engaging shows, go to airwavemedia.com. If you are interested in the world of tech, there are several podcasts from industry heavyweights such as Engadget and TechCrunch. Check them out.
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.